I licensed a bunch of stock photo th- that is of people doing silly things with face masks on and in hazmat suits trying to read newspapers and <laughs> and type on computers and <laughs> it's truly about trying to make the best of, of, of terrible circumstances. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. Want to attend a fake university? Go to grad parties and hang out with hundreds of classmates, mask-free? If yes, Omar Mualam's got you covered. He's the mind behind Pandemic University, a tongue-in-cheek online school for writers and journalists. This week, we're continuing on the theme of pivoting in the pandemic. Last episode, EventMobi's Chrissy Gao told us how the software company is developing new products for online events, in an example of businesses adapting in industries thrown sideways by the pandemic. On this episode, Omar chats on freelancers and the power of numbers and a platform to mitigate impacts in his industry and support writers who often work independently, a situation common to a lot of self-employed independent workers right now. He tells us all about Pandemic University, a pandemic pop-up and pivot, fully masked and sanitized. Our messaging is a little bit cheeky. You know, I, I licensed a bunch of stock photo that is of people doing silly things with face masks on and in hazmat suits, trying to read newspapers and and type on computers and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I so I I, I know that it's a terrible time for, for many people in the world, um, but I guess I also felt like we could all use a little bit of... We could all use something that was a little bit uplifting to our spirit, makes us smile, makes us, gives us a little bit of purpose. Um, and so I, I went with my gut on that and, um, and, you know, happily people have responded to it the way that I hope that they would. Yeah. I, uh, I started a online, uh, online virtual school for writers, by writers and supportive writers who've been affected by the COVID-19, uh, pandemic fallout. I probably don't have to tell you that the the pandemic has not been very kind to our industry, uh, m- many industries, most industries, except for maybe online delivery and uh, grocery stores. Um, but uh, you know, I wanted to I wanted to find a way to make up for the contracts that I lost um, because of advertising revenue dwindling as uh, as dramatically as it did um, because of the pandemic. And uh, I wanted to help other writers, freelancers uh, who were in my position. So I know that as as professionals, when you know when you do what you do for long enough, you you get invited to teach your craft. And I've done this over the last decade, and and my counterparts have done this over the last decade. So we all have these um, professional development classes in our back pocket. And I just thought that, well, why don't we just reboot them? Um, well curate a a suite of 14 classes we'll spread it out over two months and we'll ask people to enroll in this online university that is much more like a university uh like trump university than it is like a actual reputable university um and you know we'll let's let's try to inspire people to make the best of terrible circumstances it's a pretty good time to write if you got the creative energy and um and, and so that's what we did and honestly i had no idea if this was going to work, if people would um, would respond to it eagerly or even that positively, I feared some people would see it as insensitive 
and it's been um, more than I could ask for. <laughs> yeah, there, there was there's only been one really truly angry email, and it was from a man who would never go to our school, um, who was very upset about us calling ourselves a university, even though it's so clearly done in jest. And I did seek out permission from Universities Canada to do this beforehand. Um, but he compared us to Trump University and uh, criticized us for it. And the, the irony, though, is that this man, who is a writer and former literature professor, calls himself, wait for it, this is the name of his company, Word Doctor. Omar, who you just heard, is not calling himself the Chancellor. He's a National Magazine award-winning journalist, documentary filmmaker, and co-author of the national bestseller Inside the Inferno, a firefighter's story of the brotherhood that saved Fort McMurray. His travel stories have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, En Route, and the Globe and Mail, and his narrative journalism and personal essays in Rolling Stone, The Guardian, The Ringer, and The Walrus. His reporting on Muslim experiences has earned numerous accolades, including two National Magazine awards. He has an upcoming book, Praying to the West. Just how did someone with a serious bio come up with a real idea for a fake university? Who are his co-conspirators, and what would they usually be doing if not teaching pandemic university? Well, most of the instructors would be freelancing articles, um, or they might be, yeah, they, they'd probably be freelancing articles, um, or they might be editing magazines. Um, Janet is the exception in that she is a she's on staff at the Globe and Mail, um, but she she requested that we donate her fee to uh, an artist in need. Um, other, other instructors, Jennifer Cockrell King, uh, she runs, um, she, uh, aside from being a, a food and wine writer, um, she also, uh, works in the, uh, she runs like food and wine writing workshops and food and wine tours. She can't really do that right now. Marcello DeCincio and myself are both, um, travel writers. That's largely what we do. You can't really travel right now. Um, so I guess the, the point I'm getting at is that, um, you know, a lot of us lost work because of the pandemic for one reason or another. By the end of March, um, the two contracts that were supposed to hold me over for uh, the spring and summer, you know, they were worth about, sorry, three contracts. They were worth about $6,000 or more. Um, within about a week, they just vanished. Um, either they were, um, they were put on hiatus uh, until people are ready to talk about something other than the pandemic or the publication was put on hiatus. And in, in another instance, I was uh, about to tour this documentary that I made with uh, Dylan Reese Howard about, uh, about mental health and suicides in the oil sector. It came out last year and we'd been planning this um, tour of Alberta communities, uh, mining and energy communities. And we were just about to finalize our schedule and uh, of course, you know, we couldn't do that anymore. So I don't know. I mean, I got I got this like immigrant hustle from my family um, that, you know, when you don't have work, you go find it. And, you know, I was, I guess, unemployed for like a week when I went for a jog and had this idea of bringing together some some writers together to teach what we know. And uh since we launched on April 13th, it took about it took about 14 days from conception to launch. And since the launch, I have been fully employed, more than fully employed, um, trying to run this thing. So it's been it's been an incredible, incredible experience. We actually just surpassed 500 students today. 
Oh my God. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to, um, have the people that are teaching. I mean, it's really some of the best writers in Canada and outside of Canada as well. We have, um, they, they all have a Canadian connection. They all have some form of Canadian citizenship, I'm told. Uh, that's not really important, but uh, <laughs> we have uh, Ayala Sabari, who is a Tel Aviv-based uh, memoirist and short story writer and just a brilliant, brilliant author. Um, Caitlin Fontana, who's an Emmy-nominated screenwriter, uh, filmmaker in Brooklyn. Uh, Marcello DeCincio, award-winning author of beautiful travel memoirs. Jana Pruden, who's one of the uh, most... Uh, respected journalists in this country um, who writes incredibly about tough, tough subjects, true crime. And um, really, I mean, it's, I could go on. I mean, we, there's probably like eight other <laughs> instructors that I haven't mentioned, um, but they are truly uh, a sterling, you know, motley crew of writers and journalists. So Omar lured in a series of highly skilled writers to join the fake university. It's a good strategy. Collectively, they could draw on audience size and create a range of classes greater than each of them could individually. So Omar and his colleagues got on Twitter and started spreading the word about the writing programs. The nature, the nature of it is, is uh, or of the people who work in our industry, is that they find out about it usually through Twitter. Journalists love Twitter. Um, a lot of our classes lean toward uh, creative nonfiction journalism. And so that's, I mean, that kind of answers that. We did a survey recently and uh, a good third of people heard about it on Twitter, which you don't, you don't hear about that often. You know, if there's a, if there's a social media um, giant that uh, informs people of certain things, it's usually Facebook and very few people uh, came to this on Facebook. And then the other big one is word of mouth. And I think that once people got uh, into a class, saw how they run, saw how enjoyable they could be, they just told their friends and, and it grew and grew. As for the classes themselves, um, you can register for individual classes, or uh, we had um, until recently an enrollment program, so you could have enrolled for all the classes uh, for discounted price, or you could have enrolled in uh, seven of the 14 classes and you would choose it. We put together a syllabus for you, um, but sales have closed on that as well um, once we passed the, the midterm. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, it, it works on Zoom like everything else these days. And uh, we sell tickets on Eventbrite, like everything else in the olden days when we were allowed to gather in public places. People come in um, into the class and we're just we're ready to go. There's a brief introduction of the of how things are going to work. Um, it's going to be about, you know, 75 minutes, 15 minute question period, hand it over to the instructor and then they teach us what they know. And I'm kind of I'm kind of like a moderator slash um, like radio, you know, call in radio show producer and that I'm in the background uh, taking questions from people, vetting them, queuing them up to ask their questions face to face. I mean, you know, what's the point of being on Zoom if you don't get to have some FaceTime, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, and, and we might do a contest <laughs> by the end of the class and we say goodbye and we're done in, in two hours. And so far, it seems like everybody's happy. People who aren't able to make it or, or stick around till the very end, we send out um, some class notes that the instructor provides, as well as a link to uh, a password encrypted link to the video of the class so that they can watch it on their own time as well. It adds a lot. It adds a, a certain amount of um, higher engagement, a sense of community as well. Um, you know, you can see people 
getting to know each other a little bit more, um, but more than anything, like really getting to know the instructor a little bit more as well. Um, what's also cool about it is the the instructors are, they make themselves available for one-on-one virtual mentorship and consultation. So um, I've we've had a few requests already um, of people who are working on manuscripts or they just, you know, they want help pitching a certain ma- magazine story or, or a book proposal. And uh, they will hire the instructor that they just took a class with um, at whatever rate the instructor wants to charge. We don't take a commission or even manage any of their services or fees. It's just a, we basically just created a form on our website uh, so that you can email your request directly to the instructor. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing like a sense of ownership over it that I didn't anticipate. Um, and in uh, a sense of, yeah, like I said, community. Um, you see people tweet out these pictures of themselves taking our class. It's so funny. I mean, it's the same picture. In, in a way, it's the same picture every time. You know, it's their laptop uh, with the, you know, the, the PowerPoint slide and the, and the video of the instructor, myself and whoever else is in the gallery. Um, but then but then it's all about the background, right? So, you know, some people have like, um, action figures around their office. Some people are on their patio with this beautiful garden in the background. Um, you know, some people are, are, you can tell that it's, it's also the picture is also about flexing their book collection in the background as well. Um, uh, so it's cool. It's really, it's, it's kind of fun to peek into people's lives right now and for them to share a piece of that as, as well. Yeah. That sense of community is part of Pandemic University's success. It's been sticky, really sticky, in connecting with a specific audience, other writers and journalists. And when that happens, that tends to show up in a lot more audience engagement, sharing experiences, asking for more. It's a hard thing to figure out and design for on purpose sometimes, what the audience or customers want, what they'll be truly excited about, those people who make decisions to purchase or use a product or service, and it can take a lot of research to really get to know the market and the customers. Omar does research too through surveys and observing patterns of engagement, but he also knows his audience closely through his own experience and network already. In a venture like this, that's a huge advantage, and it's a huge advantage to also be able to design a model at limited scale, roll it out, and then be able to iterate it and refine it quickly based on feedback in a way a larger incumbent school or company might find harder to do. Fake university or not, those kinds of experiments are a classic innovator's move, and stepping in quickly as a new company to make the most of disruption in the market is a good move to make. I've given online webinars before I've I've done it a number of times. I wouldn't have thought to do this if I had not done it several times in the past. Um, Jana Pruden, one of our instructors, had recently put together a little retreat mini conference. Um, actually, <laughs> I have the mug from from it right here. It's, it was called the Mostly Western Narrative Nonfiction Writers Conference Collective, and she um, invited about uh, a dozen. Um, narrative journalists, journalism writers, creative nonfiction writers from across Canada <clears throat> to Edmonton. And we just, <clears throat> we all got together and we each had to put on a session. Um, and then we would learn from each other's sessions. And uh, it, it was really cool. I mean, people just flew in for this little makeshift retreat. And um, I think that we did that in, in the winter and that was, it was such a wonderful time. And I think that inspired me a lot. Um, some of the, <clears throat> some of the instructors at Pandemic University, not only were they at that retreat, but they actually gave classes at that retreat that they're now giving for Pandemic University. Now, otherwise, you know, you would see these kinds of things at 
industry conferences, symposiums, you know, whenever it's award season, usually a certain awards program is paired together with a conference. But the issue, the problem with that is that you got to fly to Toronto almost always to take these. There is a magazine conference in Calgary that's really great called the Alberta Magazine Publishers Association conference, but that's that's still in Calgary. Um, so, you know, there is a there's already a barrier to getting this kind of professional development. Sometimes they're done online, but they're done kind of irregularly by places like the Writers Guild of Alberta. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess um, that's, I mean, I drew from all of my experiences doing that kind of stuff. I used to be a, a writer in resident at the Edmonton Public Library as well. So I would give much more entry level kind of um, workshops uh, it, it, on behalf of the library. Um, so I'm I'm pretty comfortable in this role, and and I think I know what makes like a good workshop, webinar, seminar, whatever you want to call it. Um, so making that accessible to people wherever they are in the world, uh, wherever they are in their career, I think is good. I don't I you know I don't think it's going to at all um, eat the lunch of of conferences. Um, conferences aren't uh, can't can't they can't gather this year anyway, right? So, you know, maybe we got lucky by providing a suite of classes that um, that basically effectively got canceled because of the pandemic. But I also think that there are writers and journalists all over the English-speaking world who can learn from us and, um, and can take classes like this at any time of the year, or maybe they will pay to watch a replay to learn um, about a very specific topic, niche subject of their ex of their trade. So I think that in a way it has accidentally solved a problem that there have always been these classes, these services, but they have not been accessible to everyone and they have not been accessible year round. Now we are a pop-up school and we continue to be that. Um, so I'm not, guaranteeing that this is something I'll be able to continue year round, but we're going to do a summer semester. And if that's a success, then I'll look uh, at ways to maybe do this throughout the year. I don't know if it will be a suite of classes every season, probably not, but it might be like a class every week or a class every month. So how does the first round of Pandemic University wrap up? With the grad party, of course. In the last episode, Chrissy Gao talked about creating interaction and engagement in online events using gamification, and clearly, Pandemic University got the memo. At the grad party, Omar went full-on game show host with prizes and quizzes. Even Peter Mansbridge showed up and hung out for quite a while in Q&A. After that, they're off to a summer semester. Uh, we've made a, a deal with a bookstore, so we'll be selling books on the website soon. Um, and then I am... Uh ramping up for a summer program and right now putting together a application for instructors and trying to curate some specific instructors as well. Like there's some sub our, our audience, what I've learned is um, they're actually quite experienced. Um, they are not the people who take masterclass, you know, trademark masterclass videos. Um, uh, I like masterclass. Um, I'm a member myself. Uh, it is very entry level. Um, our students are not that our students are people who have, uh, most of them have at least three years of paid published experience. A good quarter of them have more than 10 years of that. Um, so, 
entry-level subjects don't really work for them. Um, the more specific, the better, because this is all about professional development, getting better at something that you do already. Um, so, you know, there's certain things that uh, people in our industry, intermediate or higher, um, are trying to get better at or trying to figure out because they haven't really had a chance to branch out into it, such as like podcast writing, for example. Um, but even more specific, like um, writing about sex. That's something that I'm, I'm actively looking for an instructor who writes very, very well about the subject of sex, who could teach a class about that. Um, you know, things like interactive fiction, uh, e advice columns, that kind of stuff. Sounds like a fun semester. One of the other interesting aspects of Pandemic University is its business model. As Omar mentions here, it's not just about creating community or opportunities for participating instructors and attracting as many participants to make as much money as possible. And in that respect, Pandemic University has more in common with a social enterprise that might make a profit and needs to be financially sustainable, but profit isn't the biggest priority. You might think it would be at a fake university that awards fictitious diplomas, but this university's got other priorities too. Real ones, including in this case, supporting writers and journalists more broadly, financially, as well as through professional development, and allowing instructors to drive revenue not just through the webinars, but to letting the audience know how they can work with them in other ways, like one-to-one -one mentorship or buying their books. We're, you know, kind of inherently a very Canadian school company. It might be too soon to call it a company. I guess it's a company. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not, it's not really the point of it. Like we did raise some money for the Canadian uh, Writers Trust Emergency Relief Fund. Yes, our instructors all have some connection to Canada, but um, it's, it's really not the point. Um, this, if you're an English speaking writer or journalist, or you want, or you want to be, um, this is a place for you to get better at that, no matter where you live. So what does the future look like over the next few months, or even the coming year? No idea. No idea. Um, uh, it's hard. No, nobody knows. First of all, we don't know enough about this virus. Is this virus like um, SARS in that it's a, we will find a vaccine and it's a seasonal kind of flu? Or is it an endemic virus like HIV or the measles? Does it live I guess there is a vaccine for the measles, but is it like HIV? Does it live with us forever? And if it does, how long until we have it under control? So, you know, that, that is going to change. Um, that's going to change the way that we are able to launch our books, for example, right? Usually you, you put out a book, you do a book tour, but if the travel restrictions, um, remain as they are or you know be or are unpredictable as in they get lifted and then come back down and lifted and come back down or they're just like from region to region does the book tour continue as a function of the literary and publishing industry for the foreseeable future i don't know i want to know because i've got a book out next year um but i i i guess i'm not going to wait to find out um you know if uh you know if things are looking the way they are then you know i'm going to I'm going to schedule my own book tour virtually if I have to do that um, or work with my publisher to do that. And you already see some of that happening, but I think people see it as a, as a temporary solution and a novelty. Well, I'm wondering if, if that's going to be like the new normal 
for the next while because maybe it's not the travel restrictions that restrict book tours. Um, and I, I'm sorry to harp on book tours. I'll get to other aspects of the industry, but maybe it's not just the travel um, restrictions that uh, that limit book tours. Maybe it is the, you know, maybe it's an economic um, impact um, of the publishing industry that doesn't allow for instructor or for writers rather to um, uh, to budget for writers to promote their books or you know literary festivals which is typically where we where we do our book launches and and share our you know our our expertise and knowledge um live the the live event industry is um you know maybe maybe more than any other industry right now is is suffering and is going to suffer long-term effects um maybe more than you know the restaurant industry for example so this is my very long-winded way of saying I don't know. And if and then we we get to journalism publications that saw their ad revenue um, basically, you know, almost disappear, like really, really, really eviscerated um, in practically overnight. Like, what was it? 50 newspapers in Canada have shut down in the last two months? Shut down, gone. You know, places like the Vancouver Courier. Um, if that's the new normal, then what does that mean for freelance budgets? Do newspapers, magazines even have freelance budgets anymore? And those freelance budgets, how much can they pay us to write? I mean, freelance rates were already um, stagnant, if not dwindling over the last uh, 15 years since I got into the industry. At some publications in the last two months, they got they got reduced by 50%. Are they able to bounce back? I don't know. A lot of places didn't, a lot of uh, our industry didn't bounce back after the 2008 recession. So I do hear some people calling this a possible extinction level event for the industry. I don't believe that, but I do think that for a lot of seasoned journalists and freelancers like myself, if we can't afford to live the way that we are comfortable living, doing what we do, working as hard as we did doing that stuff, then we might have to look at other careers. Now, that's not necessarily, I mean, it, it is a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a terrible thing because it could possibly clear the way for a, another generation of really talented writers to come in. Um, sadly, they won't make as much as they deserve to do the work that they do. However, at the current moment, they're struggling to get noticed, struggling to um, break into the industry or see their careers flourish. Maybe we need to make some room for them. And maybe that's how you do it. I don't know. It no doubt sets, it, this is no doubt sending the industry back several, several, several steps, leaps. Yeah. So Pandemic University is stepping into a future for writers that's uncharted. It's also stepping into a model that could be useful for other self-employed people who typically work independently in creating a platform that supports and promotes a diverse set of skill sets, in this case writers who are experts in different genres, to an interested niche group. Other platforms that offer courses have gone in different directions. Venture capital funding, slick edutainment and household names like Masterclass, massive audiences, and a huge range of courses like Coursera, Udemy, or others. Could Omar drive a larger audience by marketing to recreational and amateur writers as well as his current audience? 
Maybe, but that would be a different kind of company with another market segment and maybe other classes, and they'd be competing with other businesses from universities to big learning platforms, so it's a different ballgame. This school so far is a two- or three-sided business model built around a unique network of freelancers, the instructors, the writer audience who support the platform directly, and affiliated bookstores, magazines, or publishers. It works in focusing on a specific niche and going in-depth to provide real value to a very specific group. So what's next for Pandemic University, especially when universities have helped us get through stay-at-home times and challenges during the pandemic from boredom to understanding major events? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's it's interesting. We need our storytellers maybe more than we've ever needed them um, because they are giving us comfort, therapy, saving us from boredom, <laughs> keeping the family together, <laughs> whether that's Netflix or it is um, or it's a really great book. I, one thing that I'm heartened to see is that independent bookstores and book sales in general are doing very well right now. So that's that's good news. Um, but uh you know, I guess it, it, the, the sad thing is that newspapers and magazines and those who give us the news, they're being consumed at a level that I don't know has ever been seen before. Truly, they, you know, they are one of the most essential, essential services. And the the irony, the cruel, cruel irony that at a time when people are relying on them, consuming news the most, our purchasing habits or rather the the purchasing habits of of uh companies that would normally advertise with them and can no longer do it are also posing a grave danger to this thing that we need so desperately right now and we need it to be good is important as well we don't just need newspapers to exist we need newspapers to report to report well to give us quality news you know, our vision was as a relief project for writers who could use the help right now. And we're going to try to stick to that as much as possible uh, for the time being. Um, I have a I have a background as a magazine editor, um, did that for many years, occasionally still do it. And this is very similar to that for me. It is like putting together a magazine, except instead of, um, you know, 14 stories, I'm putting together 14 classes on a variety of subjects working with 14 different writers, or in this case, 11 different writers, but we should have 14 for the next, um, on, you know, on their, on their subjects. And that's fun. I, I really enjoy being in that mode. Um, I get a lot from it and I get a lot, uh, as a writer and as an editor from engaging with readers and, um, the students are very much like readers and I, I enjoy engaging with them directly. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, I, I'm definitely open to some sort of partnerships, maybe um, working with publishers to uh, launch, do virtual book launches, for example. I know that a lot of authors never really got a fair book launch. Um, spring is a, is a time when a lot of great books come out, especially in the nonfiction genre, and uh, they never got to have their party. And, you know, if they want to have a party with us, maybe we'll, we'll help put it on. What about Omar's own upcoming book? And how can you support that storytelling work? I'm working on a travel memoir about Muslims in the Americas called Praying to the West. I spent two years um, traveling uh, traveling to mosques from, I guess it would be like northeast Brazil to southwest uh, of the Arctic Circle. Um, and uh, just trying to put together a more accurate, humanizing portrait of Western Muslims 
and kind of and, and and even for myself kind of learn a little bit more about the diversity of a very misunderstood religion and um yeah, I mean, it's it, it should be out next spring, I hope. It's being published by Simon & Schuster Canada. Um, I've been lucky enough to publish one sort of excerpt from it uh, in The Ringer called... Um, it's called How the First Arab-American Movie Star Foretold a Century of Muslim Misrepresentation. It was a really neat historic story. During my research, I found out that um, not only <laughs> not only was the first Arab American movie star, Frank Lactine, um, not only was he from my family's village in Lebanon, but he was actually my distant cousin and that he was at one point, one of the top villains in Hollywood playing all sorts of baddies. Um, but his, you know, his quality, um, his, his calling card was that he was ethnically ambiguous. So he could be like a bad Arab, but he could also be like a bad Native American or a bad Chinese guy or a bad um, African guy. Um, he was he was typecast as just the worst kind of ethnic villain at a time of extreme American xenophobia. So that's that's one story from the book, and you can you can find that uh, online on the Ringer. I guess if people are looking for ways that they can support writers right now. Um, they can donate to the Canadian Writers Trust Emergency Relief Fund, um, Penn Canada, and and all sorts of like literary arts organizations that are seeking some funds to help storytellers in need right now. Um, another way that they can do it is they can subscribe to a goddamn newspaper um, or a magazine. Um, they can do that. And then, of course, if they're interested in um, getting better at their work, they can hire one of our instructors through our website as well. So, yeah. So Pandemic University is providing real services to writers on both sides of their platform. It's a unique model of an emerging pandemic service that's innovated a business model by tapping into one part of many writers' portfolio and skill set, instruction, and taking it online. Omar's also drawn in his own unique blend of skills and talents to do that. Like a lot of other innovators who've appeared on the show, from his writing and magazine editing background to web design, entrepreneurialism, and a broad network of other writers and journalists to help spread the word. Like a lot of other companies we've talked to, Pandemic University will likely be continuing to pivot through the coming months as conditions change. We'll be interested to see how it unfolds. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Pandemic University and the July semester, you can find them at pandemicuniversity.com or on Twitter at Pandemic School. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to comment on it, you can find Crosspollination at crosspollination.co or on Twitter at Polonata1. And of course, we always appreciate it if you enjoyed the show and introduced it to anyone else. Join us next time for an episode on diversity and inclusion and what it means and doesn't for innovation. This episode of Cross-Pollination is brought to you by Storylines, a podcast from Women in Film and Television, Alberta. Storylines highlight some of the province's most successful women in film and television, both behind the camera and in front of it. Host Gina Rossiter is herself a filmmaker, and she's had some deep and instructive conversations with trailblazers and experts in the field. A recent episode you might find interesting is Tasha Hubbard telling Indigenous stories. You can find Storylines on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at wifta.ca. 
This episode is also brought to you by the Alberta Queer Calendar Project, which features monthly podcast dramas by queer Albertan writers through 2020. Episodes are released monthly and are free to access anywhere you get your podcasts. Listen and learn more about the Alberta Queer Calendar, presented by Cardiac Theatre in partnership with What It Is Productions at queercalendar.ca. Thanks for listening and see you next time.